Uh, we'll get an FBI report soon. It'll be made available to each senator, and only senators will be allowed to look at it. And only for five minutes each, no notes, and they must wear a blindfold. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WTPA, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From Bradblog.com, thank you for joining us today. As the Kavanaugh Chronicles continue with uh, confirmation of a bar fight said to have been caused by the man who is now the nominee for a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. Boy, this just keeps getting better and better. Hmm. Back in uh, 1985, according to police records, when Kavanaugh allegedly either threw ice or beer on a man at a bar, resulting in a fight and a friend of his spending the night of jail in the bargain, further confirming Kavanaugh's uh, reputation as an angry, belligerent drunk, at least back in high school and college. No idea how belligerent or drunk he is now well belligerent we know we saw that in last week's testimony (laughs) yes i think he proved that quite well also it confirms his reputation for not being willing to answer questions the police report from 1985 reveals the kavanaugh kavanaugh um during what the police described as an assault refused quote to say if he threw the ice or not that sounds familiar doesn't it sounds about right Uh, Meanwhile, the FBI investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct by Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh will be available to all senators, but not released to the public, according to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday. He made the remarks as senators in the White House await the conclusion of the probe currently set to be completed by Friday at the very latest. McConnell has signaled he wants the Senate to vote very quickly after that, while Democrats urged a 24-hour delay between when the report was released to them and the vote. 24 hours after Mitch McConnell held up, I should say blocked entirely, 
the nomination of Merrick Garland under uh, Barack Obama for more than 300 days. Now Democrats are left begging for 24 hours to pretty please review the days-long FBI investigation of a man who is accused of sexual assault by three different named individuals and a man who has lied multiple times to Congress, which is a felony, during his confirmation hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, So if you're looking for a broken system, this would be it. And by the way, to those suggesting that the system has been, uh, oh, it's been broken for years, broken by the partisanship of both sides. To those people, I would like to say something that I cannot say over FCC radio. Uh, But no, this is not a both sides do it situation and shame on anyone in the media even suggesting as much as it ill informs the electorate about the truth of of what we are all now watching here. Unless two of uh, three GOP senators, those uh, three would be Jeff Flake of Arizona, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine, uh, unless... Essentially, unless two of the three of them demand more time to review the results of the investigation, whatever those results are from the FBI, this vote is going to happen before weeks end. And you can bet your bottom dollar that Kavanaugh will be sworn in to the U.S. Supreme Court within hours of that passing in the U.S. Senate, if it passes. Um, McConnell declared yesterday on the Senate floor and again today that they are going to hold this vote this week come hell or high water. They have no idea what's coming back from the investigation, but they don't care. They are going to hold a vote for this guy, for the U.S. Supreme Court, for his lifetime appointment. As to the public being allowed to see whatever the FBI comes up with, well, we may never see the results of the FBI probe at all, period. Senator John Cornyn of Texas, the uh, Republican Senate Majority Whip uh, and a member of the Judiciary Committee, he told reporters on Tuesday that he was, quote, hopeful, just hopeful, that the Senate would release some kind of, quote, summary or, quote, statement informing the public about the results of this FBI follow-up investigation. Well, I guess it depends on who writes it. If we get anything at all. Uh, If we get anything at all. And why are we getting a summary no matter who writes it? Why aren't we allowed to see the information regarding this justice, the, uh, you know, in this uh, swing vote seat for the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, You know, why aren't we allowed to see the uh, the 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 material from that investigation, even if it's redacted to, uh, you know, keep certain private, uh, you know, stuff out? Anyway, Cornyn pretended he gave a damn about what the public thinks uh, on Tuesday, saying, I think it's important that the results in some form be shared with the public, even, I guess, if that form is a uh, completely bastardized form that uh, completely misleads about what the investigation actually says. Not that it will, but we won't know because we won't be allowed to see it. GOP leadership is reportedly hopeful that the FBI will finish its investigation by Wednesday. All of this, all of the Sturm and Drang, 
because Republicans wouldn't allow, you know, if this thing gets finished by Wednesday, that means it, uh, you know, began essentially on Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, six days. They couldn't hold it up for six days that we had to have a fight about that for weeks before this was even allowed. So anyway, as we discussed on yesterday's broadcast with former litigator uh, Jessica Pielko, you can download that for free at bradblog.com. The public may see next to nothing here. And even if senators um, will only get to see themselves what the White House allows them to see. Because the reports going back to the White House, the White House can decide what it wants to give over to the U.S. Senate. And the senators will get to see it. Uh, it, but who knows if they'll even have time to review it before being forced to cast a vote on this guy's lifetime seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. In which he's going to sit in judgment on all of us. So, yeah. Talk about a rigged process. There you go. Uh, but there are, in the meantime, quite a few other stories of note happening amidst all of this, as we are now just 35 days away from the crucial midterm elections, with one-third of that U.S. Senate and the entire U.S. House up for re-election, not to mention scores of uh, key state and local contests that will have a huge effect on all of our futures. Uh, and yes, on redistricting after the 2020 Census, that is at stake here as well, uh, making this election important for all sorts of reasons, uh, but not just for the next two years, arguably for the next decade or longer. Among some of the important non-Kavanaugh-related stories to have broken over the past 24 to 48, 48 hours, an updated version of NAFTA has been agreed upon by the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Amazon has announced it's raising its minimum wage for all workers to $15 an hour. And California's governor has signed a net neutrality bill into law for the state after the Trump FCC killed the consumer protections instituted under Obama. And that bill was signed into law on Sunday only to see the Trump Department of Justice sue California within hours after that bill was signed into law, because, you know, Republicans really believe in states' rights, don't they? Like they tell us all the time. Uh, anyway, we will speak momentarily to financial journalist David Dayan about all three of those stories in hopes of learning how important they are or aren't as we head towards the midterms. And then there's this President Donald Trump's weakening of pollution and fuel efficiency standards for new cars will lead to as many as 300 premature deaths annually, while also doing nothing to rein in potentially catastrophic global warming. That, according to the government's own official environmental analysis of the policy, the proposed change in standards, which was uh, rolled out in August, would also cost Americans nearly 17,000 days of work a year because of increased illness. That, according to the analysis by Trump's own National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Critics say the administration's own environmental analysis proves why the mileage standards for new cars and the amount of pollution they're allowed to admit uh, emit into the air should not be weakened, as the new proposals recommend. Paul Billings, the senior vice president for advocacy at the American Lung Association, says premature death is the ultimate health effect. And this policy, taken with many other policies being proposed by the administration, are all leading to more air pollution. 
and clear adverse health effects. David Pettit, a senior attorney with the National Resources Defense Council, said, quote, the only big winners in this would seem to be the oil companies. Incredibly enough, the Trump administration is citing those figures about premature deaths and, uh, you know, making global warming even worse. They're citing those figures and the harm that their policy would do to the environment in uh, hastening the worst effects of global warming as an argument in favor of rolling back the Obama fuel efficiency standards uh, that would save consumers money, their health, and and help uh, climate change. Um, the report also projects that under current policies, the Earth will warm by 7 degrees Fahrenheit over pre-industrial levels by the end of the century, and that's before Trump's rollback of these standards take place. Seven-degree increase um, anticipated by the Trump administration would likely trigger flooding of New York, Miami, other coastal cities, and a string of other disasters, according to the administration's own numbers. Yeah, they say it flat out. People are going to die from all of this. Coastal cities are going to be swamped. Millions of refugees, lots of sick days, people getting sick and die because they don't care. So support our policy that does all of that. Anyway, more on all of those disasters in Desi Doyen's upcoming Green News Report a little bit later in the hour. But right now, let me take a quick break and we'll be joined by David Dayan to explain the new NAFTA. The administration's fight against California's new net neutrality law and Amazon.com's new announcement of a $15 an hour minimum wage. That and more is ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent. 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Throughout the campaign, I promised to renegotiate NAFTA. And today we have kept that promise. I'm thrilled to speak to the American people to share truly historic news for our nation. It's my great honor to announce that we have successfully completed negotiations on a brand new deal to terminate and replace NAFTA with an incredible new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement called USMCA. The agreement will govern nearly 1.2 trillion in trade, which makes it the biggest trade deal in the United States history. Wow, truly historic news. A brand new deal to terminate and replace NAFTA with a totally new deal between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, making it, quote, the biggest trade deal in United States history. That was the White House propaganda video uh, released to trumpet this totally brand new NAFTA deal. It certainly sounds important, and had Donald Trump not described everything he's done in the short and traumatic history of his presidency as the biggest and the best and the most historic, well, one might be inclined to believe him. But is it really all of those things? Also making non-Kavanaugh-related news this week, on Sunday, the governor of California signed a net neutrality bill 
to restore the level playing field for all Internet service providers that Donald Trump's FCC rolled back at the federal level. Just hours later, again on a Sunday night, the Trump administration's Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against California to prevent the law from taking effect. Despite the Republicans' years-long claims that they favor states' rights over big federal government overreach, and today, in a story delivered to everyone's doorstep just minutes after the order went through at Amazon, the world's second most valuable company, after Apple, announced that they were increasing their minimum wage for all workers, both permanent and seasonal, to $15 an hour, effective next month. Amazon, whose value topped $1 trillion briefly in September, has long been facing political and economic pressure to raise pay for thousands of employees and will now do so for some 350,000 current full and part-time employees, as well as seasonal positions and employees at their Whole Foods upscale grocery stores, which they now also own. Amazon founder and CEO announced uh, Jeff Bezos announced today we listened to our critics, thought hard about what we wanted to do, and decided we wanted to lead. Here to explain all of these stories somehow, how important they are and aren't, and what effect, if any, they may or may not have on the midterm elections just over a month away, is our old friend and financial journalist David Dayan. He's contributing columnist at The Intercept, The L.A. Times, uh, an investigative fellow at In These Times magazine and the author of the critically acclaimed Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David Day, and welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, thank you for having me on again. I uh, want to jam a ridiculous amount of information into one uh, segment here with you today. Well, let's give it a try. Uh, I want to start with Amazon. As I was reviewing all of these stories today, uh, a variation of the old game show Deal or No Deal came to mind. I'm, I'm going to call it... Big deal or no big deal? So to that end, is this uh, is this a big deal or no big deal when it comes to Amazon raising its minimum wage for all U.S. workers to $15 an hour, not over time, by the way, but immediately beginning next month as they're preparing to hire some 100,000 seasonal workers in time for the holiday season? Yeah, I think you got to call that a big deal. Uh you're, you're talking about a workforce of something on the order of 350,000 workers. Mm -hmm. Amazon is the second largest employer in the United States behind Walmart. And uh, it's not just that workers at Amazon may get a raise out of this. It's how that interfaces with the general low-wage workforce. Mm -hmm. So we saw this effect, actually, when... Uh, Walmart raised their wages a few years back, and pretty much every retailer was forced, essentially, to raise their wages in comparison. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would have lost a lot of their workers to Walmart who could get better pay there. Uh, the same dynamic could uh, present itself in the case of Amazon. Uh, when, when you have one large employer offering $15 an hour and other places are offering 10 or 11 uh, and, and you're talking about these, these low-wage, relatively speaking, unskilled jobs, mm -hmm. uh, workers can move pretty freely from one to the other and uh, that, that is only going to 
bid the price of labor up, and so that is a good thing. Uh, the other thing we should talk about why this is a big deal yeah. is that it comes on the heels of uh, Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna introducing this bill in Congress called the Stop Bezos Act, okay. which would have put, uh, that's an acronym, but you know, right. I think we all know what it meant, um, it, it, it would have put large employers on the hook uh, for any uh, benefits, Medicaid, food stamps, that their workers uh, apply for. In other words, it would have been 100% tax on all of the mm. food stamp or, or Medicaid or, or public benefits right. that workers at those companies get. And, uh, you know, it was kind of derided at the time by the left that was, you know, not workable and counterproductive and all these things. But it, it showed uh, a desire to go after these large employers that refused to pay their workers a living wage. And it manifests itself in this policy that's announced today. Uh, so I, I, I don't know how you can see that as anything but a success, and a political success, for Bernie Sanders and this idea that uh, you need to put pressure on these huge monopolistic companies in order to get them to do right by their workers. Uh, on Tuesday, Senator Sanders uh, congratulated Amazon CEO Bezos uh, for, quote, doing exactly the right thing. He urged other companies to do the same. He told Bloomberg's Josh Idelson that Bezos's actions are, quote, one of the most significant, important corporate leaders in this country that's going to reverberate around the corporate world. He says he has no doubt that other companies will file suit, will follow suit. Uh, David, with Amazon now all in and Republicans continuously telling us that the economy is at record numbers with record employment, record corporate profits. Uh, what excuse is there exactly left to not increase the minimum wage at the federal level at this point? I mean, I suppose the excuse would be that, well, Amazon is doing this willingly and voluntarily. And so mm -hmm. let the market work. You know, the market okay. will decide the wage. Uh, I suppose that will be the argument. Uh, but either way, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really, uh, it, it doesn't matter that much to me whether or not uh, uh, workers are getting a raise because of federal policy or because mm -hmm. one employer, through pressure, raised their wages and forced everyone else to. However, there is sort of an escape valve here for Amazon uh, that we should talk about, and that is the fact that uh, increasingly, Amazon uh, uses labor uh, from workers that are not employees of the company. Uh. And uh, in their statement, they said that workers who were contracted, like temps, contracted by an agency would also be eligible for this $15 an hour wage. But that does not include, that, that, that's not the gamut of Amazon contract workers that are out there. Mm. There are these third-party employers called DSPs, direct service providers, uh, that uh, employ a lot of people in the delivery space that wear Amazon uniforms, that use Amazon equipment, that deliver Amazon packages, but that are not Amazon employees. I do not know if they are going to qualify for this. Mm. There have been celebrated wage theft cases around those individuals mm -hmm. uh, who were told that they would get one uh, certain price for their labor and they're not. 
there's also something called Amazon Flex, which is like a gig economy Uber type deal for package delivery where you can do this in your spare time. And there is no uh, guarantee in that statement that Amazon made that those Amazon Flex workers would be getting $15 an hour on their side hustle. So uh, Amazon seems to be pushing this forward, and whatever, it's a response to pressure. Maybe, you know, we'll, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They have good reasons to do it. But at the same time, they are scheming to find ways to employ people to do jobs that Amazon needs to do without calling them Amazon workers, uh-huh. thereby not making them eligible for this wage. And I hope that the conversation moves in that direction now. I'll certainly be uh, writing some stories about that aspect of this. Uh, it, it's it's, it's mm-hmm. something that we can't really take our eyes off of. the uh, I noted well at least when I checked earlier that uh, the move today by Amazon has not really had much of an effect either way on Amazon stock prices so apparently shareholders are not so furious which is uh, you know one of the claims that Wall Street has made uh, we can't raise uh, minimum wages because uh, shareholders will be upset the company will end up losing money that does not at least so far sure. appear to be the case. Uh, and in, at the same time, on Tuesday, David, um, fast food workers in Michigan are kicking off a series of protests in the Midwest and elsewhere around the country uh, to support a $15 minimum wage. Has Amazon's move undercut the claim that companies like McDonald's and Burger King and Arby's, etc., can't, you know, they just can't afford such wage increases? Or should we see those companies in a completely different category somehow from an Amazon? No, I do think it's going to be difficult not only to just make the argument, but to retain workers if Amazon is sitting out there paying $15 an hour to its warehouse workers. Mm. Uh, the reason that stockholders might have uh, not been troubled by the increase in labor costs from Amazon is that the flip side of it is that Amazon is a huge, largely successful company with barrels of money that can afford to, to, you know, bump up their, their, their labor costs without a problem. But by doing so, they're forcing other companies, maybe competitors, maybe smaller competitors in the workplace to do so and, and uh, you know, making it difficult for their lives and thereby, you know, winning more market share. So uh, you, you can also see this in the terms of Amazon's bid to essentially become the market mm. for, for pretty much all good. Yeah. Uh, if they can sort of bid out these other competitors, then they can they can they can gain share that way. All right, let's turn to um, NAFTA 2.0 or NAFTA 2018, as the trade negotiator uh, ne- negotiators called it, uh, or the USMCA, the United States That's Mexico right. Canada Agreement, as Donald Trump prefers to call it. Uh, in order to describe it as an entirely new, totally different deal from NAFTA, David. Uh, you heard uh, at the top there from the president, it's a brand new deal to terminate and replace NAFTA entirely. The biggest trade deal in U.S. history. So let me take a run at this this way um, with sort of three questions, if it can be called down to this. One, uh, what were the major central complaints about NAFTA from progressives like you and me? 
What were the major complaints about NAFTA from guys like Donald Trump? And finally, how does the new USMCA actually address those complaints? Well, the, the complaints from progressives and, and Donald Trump aren't all that dissimilar. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the, the idea is that uh, this agreement uh, created a free trade zone, particularly with Mexico, a low-wage country, and enabled uh, companies to move their locations of their manufacturing into Mexico and enjoy the much lower labor costs without losing anything in terms of, uh, you know, uh, having to deal with the tariff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, 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 it facilitated a lot of outsourcing uh, to a country that has very poor labor rights, uh, very poor environmental standards, uh, and undercut uh, manufacturing here in the United States. That was the big complaint, certainly from, from Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. The, you know, if you, if you delve into it more, the sort of broad complaint from progressives is that these these free trade agreements, so-called free trade agreements, are really a, a, a corporate wish list. They set up this, this harmonizing of regulatory standards, of a host of different rules uh, for how goods are uh, not only moved back and forth, but how they're treated in, in, in the regulatory scheme and in the marketplace. And uh, because the trade regime is so dominated by corporate advisors who get a, a special line to the negotiators mm-hmm. that uh, this creates all kinds of distortions, uh, giveaways to corporations, uh, and, and, and really almost a fourth branch of government where laws are being written and changed through these trade agreements rather than through the legislative process, which ends up just rubber stamping these trade deals. So. Uh, those are sort of the two interrelated but sort of separate complaints. Right. So how did the USMCA address these? Well, on labor, uh, there are some interesting things in there. Uh, even though this only affects auto workers, for the first time ever, they have put a wage standard into the agreement. So uh, the... Uh, there a certain amount of goods have to be created in the United States, Mexico, or Canada in terms of uh, auto parts right. and, and, and autos. Uh, and those jobs, uh, the people actually manufacturing those parts and those autos, have to make a minimum of $16 an hour. Now, that is uh, lower than the average wage in the United States for an auto worker, an auto parts worker, but it's about four times the average wage in Mexico. So this will do two things. Number one, it will increase uh, wages for Mexican auto workers, mm-hmm. and or it will deter the outsourcing of jobs from the United States to Mexico because you're just moving to a place where you have to pay a high, uh, relatively high wage anyway. So uh, that that is an advance. Uh, the other labor issue is... Um, really changes in Mexican labor law so they could have real unions, mm-hmm. uh, so they can have a real voice on the job. Right now the unions are, are kind of fake paper tigers in Mexico. Uh, so those are advances. However, the enforcement of that labor chapter is very suspect 
it's unclear. Certainly workers themselves cannot appeal to any governing body mm-hmm. uh, if they feel like the, 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 the trade deal is being violated. And governments have problems. How, how is the United States going to know what Mexican auto workers are making? How are they going to know that the unions are real? Uh, so there, there are some real, real questions there. And that's why the labor uh, movement has not really jumped aboard this deal mm. yet. Yeah, you write so, uh, in, in, uh, when you wrote about uh, at the end of August, I think it was, when the U.S. and Mexico uh, struck their original agreement, um, which uh, Canada now appears to have joined. Uh, you, you sort of summarize this complicated uh, formula here. 75% of a car's value must now be made in North America as opposed to 62.5% under the original NAFTA. Um, and that uh, it must be made by, and that half of the car must be made by workers who earn at least $16 an hour versus in Mexico where uh, they make auto parts for less than $4 an hour. So it's interesting that there is no actual mechanism to enforce that for labor. But meanwhile, the corporations still seem to have a number of mechanisms they can use, even if the, uh, as you know, the notorious investor state dispute settlement, the ISDS project, process um, has largely been gutted is that fair to say the uh, which which allowed foreign corporations to sue for expected future profits when laws and regulations change here in the US that yeah, is that, largely that, gone yeah that's a huge deal uh, this is the end of the sort of corporate shakedown regime and it's more it's less important that it's in this deal with just these three companies mm-hmm. countries but it's the fact that this becomes the template mm. that uh, Donald Trump and Republican administrations, and presumably if someone like an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders get into office, Democratic administrations will take forward to all trade agreements. And if the United States is essentially pulling out of the investor state dispute settlement process, then it's going to be hard for other countries to, to be able to, you know, keep it together and stay in it. So this is really the beginning of the end for, for ISDS, which is this really horrendous system where, where governments have paid hundreds of millions of dollars to corporations mm-hmm. uh, when they change their, their, their laws, uh, you know, after a change of government perhaps, or if they just want to protect their citizens in some way, they can get sued for, as you said, expected future profits. Uh, uh, from from these these foreign investor uh, corporations. Now, so I, that's great. Uh, well, in theory, it's great, David. I should note, uh, if I understand this correctly, I think the ISDS is actually uh, referred to as Chapter Eleven in the uh, in the deal, mm-hmm. and uh, it's apparently eliminated entirely for Canada, mostly for Mexico, except for a couple of key industries, specifically energy and telecommunications, uh, that would seem to underscore the lobbying power of those two industries. But uh, any idea why they and only they were allowed to, to, to hang on to the ISDS process? Yeah, this is, this is essentially the, the price that was paid to get rid of it throughout the rest of the system. Uh, the, these, these particular... Uh, 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 companies Mm -hmm. in the oil and gas sector, they would have to be ones who have contracts currently, uh, and and, and the carve-out would apply to them. Uh, It's essentially a hedge 
against the new incoming Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, from renationalizing the, uh, the, the, the oil and gas sector, which right. he has suggested that he might do. It was opened up under the current president, Peña Nieto. Um, it, it's, it's a high, it, it, you know, it, it definitely is uh, a, a carve-out and something that, that I think uh, um, opponents of the ISDS regime don't want to see. Uh, but uh, I would just say that even within that carve-out, damages for expected future profits could not be uh, uh, recouped. Only concrete damages mm. for essentially expropriation, which is if you nationalize the oil sector in Mexico, uh, you're essentially taking the factories away from uh, these, these foreign, foreign uh, corporations. So that is the only damage that could be instituted Can- in that case. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how that, how that proceeds. Uh, but, you know, I still would say on balance it's an advance, but that's not to say that there aren't other parts of the agreement where corporate interests certainly got their way. Catherine uh, Rampell, a columnist over at Washington Post, argues that after spending a year and a half alienating our friends, punishing our our farmers and manufacturers with devastating tariffs and counter-tariffs and fracturing the hard-won alliance we had built to isolate and pressure China, we finally got a new trade deal and a new, as she puts in quotes, snarkily, a new trade strategy, yet somehow they look an awful lot like the old ones. She writes that Trump has wrought a lot of destruction in service of landing us in roughly the same position we would have been had we stayed in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, and pursued more amicable negotiations with Mexico and Canada on other outstanding issues. Um, Does that sound about right? Well, let me uh, shoehorn. No? No? Okay. I, I don't think so. I think that's a lazy way of looking at this agreement. Uh, the, the changes uh, with regard to ISDS, the changes on the wage standard on a rule of origin, mm-hmm. those are groundbreaking. Those, are, those have not been in a trade deal before. Uh, the changes to the labor chapter, uh, should it actually be able to be enforced, are important. Uh, I will say that there are some, back, there are some, some negative things in the deal, and most of them were things that are carried over from the, the TPP. Uh, the, the copyrights raised from 50 to 75 years, which uh, is just a, a, a gift to the Hollywood and the music industry mm-hmm. for, uh, the, uh, you know, and additional protectionism there. Uh, the patents for pharmaceuticals to make it harder for uh, people to be able to afford life-saving medications, those go up uh, in the deal. There is, for the first time ever in a trade deal, and I wrote about this three months ago, and it wasn't really picked up anywhere, but uh, it is in the deal, uh, immunity for websites that host, uh, uh, you know, user-generated content. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that is in, uh, it's called Section 230 in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's part of the Communications Decency Act, and, and it, it really gives a free pass to uh, the Googles and the YouTubes of the world, the host fake news, the host, uh, uh, you know, defamatory content, uh, and, and not be held liable for it in any real way because they say, well, we're not publishers and we have this, this, uh, this particular immunity. Now that is being exported to the world for the first time in 
trade agreement. Uh, that's a very dangerous precedent. So I'm not all on board with this uh, this new uh, you know USMCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say to to make the argument that it's oh it's just TPP 2.0 or oh it's just this and that uh, is is just Now, uh, very quickly, because I want to get to California net neutrality and and how all of this may or may not affect the election. But NAFTA had the support of Bill Clinton and the Blue Dog Democrats at the time of its original passage back in the 1990s. Um, Will this new NAFTA, USMCA, as Trump calls it, will it be similarly welcomed by enough conservative Democrats or just Democrats overall in order to push it through, or will all of this have been for naught? I think this is really interesting because actually uh, where it's pitched is to labor Democrats. Uh, The the U.S. trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, believes that he can sell this deal to Democrats who are broadly supportive of labor because he thinks labor is going to get behind it. That's the only way this passes. And by the way, this is not going to pass in a lame duck session. This is likely to not get a vote in Congress until the next Congress. We don't know what that Congress is going to look like yet. Mm. Uh, is, are Democrats going to be in charge of the House uh, or the Senate? Uh, we, we, we really don't know just yet. And that's going to inform what kind of leverage Democrats might have to firm up the labor enforcement parts of the deal, for example. Uh, or to make other uh, changes uh, and, and condition that on their vote. So they, uh, they can still call for improvements to this deal they if they... They can't, they can't make an amendment to it under right. the fast-track rules, but they can say, we're not going to pass this in its current form, and you better make some changes either through a side agreement or further negotiation. Mm. So, so there are you know, measures that Congress can take uh, uh, before they sign off, and I think that's probably what it's going to take to really get labor aboard, but they might see, say that this is, this is an advance and this is the best we can do and, and urge Democrats to move ahead with it. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this agreement is received on Capitol Hill by Democrats and Republicans, because there's something in there for each of those constituencies, and, a, and and there's something in there for both of them to uh, be to, unhappy to with. To oppose, so, yeah. We'll see. Uh, finally, uh, Donald Trump's Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against the state of California on Sunday night, just after Governor Jerry Brown signed a new bill into law that enforces net neutrality rules that had been abandoned by the Uh, The Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, last year, the bill was passed by the California state legislature in August. And uh, both the FCC and companies like U.S. Telecom, which now owns AT&T and Verizon, they were furious about California doing this, um, passing this state law to protect Internet safeguards implemented by the Obama administration. Attorney General Jeff Sessions complained in his statement on Sunday night after uh, Brown had signed this law, this uh, bill into law. He said, quote, the Justice Department should not have to spend valuable time and resources to file the suit. But we have a duty to defend the prerogatives of the federal government and protect our constitutional order. 
Uh, David, Dan, what happened to Republicans' um, states' rights and smaller state government knowing what's best for their residents? This would seem to be, unless I'm missing something here, the complete opposite of that, no? Yeah, particularly for Alabama's own Jefferson Beauregard Sessions <laughs> right. that we must preserve the Union uh, in yeah. this case. Uh, it's it's definitely unusual place for them to be, but, you know, it's also unusual for Democrats to support federalism uh, uh, so strongly by saying that California should go its own way. But uh, there are precedents here, of course. Uh, California put forward uh, first-in-the-nation auto emission standards that mm-hmm. were eventually taken up by the entire country. Uh, California has put together an online privacy that uh, looks like it's going to become uh, uh, part of the discussion around a federal standard. So uh, I think that's the fear on the part of uh, yeah. the Trump administration, is that if you give net neutrality protections to the, uh, you know, if you allow the state of California to pass them, mm-hmm. then that's going to migrate. I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about one in eight citizens living in the state of California, first of all. And second of all, the way that IP addresses go and, and, and the way you can mask things, uh, you know, you're talking about a, a much larger group of people, actually, potentially. So uh, I, I think there's a genuine uh, concern there that these regulations, which, of course, were in place at the federal level and, and were taken out by FCC Chair Ajit Pai uh, and, and, and the conservatives on the FCC, uh, would would almost by by default come back if this were allowed to stand. I I, I don't know about the jurisprudence here of, of how California is is not allowed to write laws for the state of California. Right. Uh, I don't really know what the strategy is going to be from the Justice Department on this one, but uh, uh, certainly yeah. they feel the heat because otherwise uh, all that work that they did at the FCC would be for naught. It's unclear to me what constitutional protections are being taken away uh, from uh, Californians by allowing this law to go through. But, uh, yeah, they Maybe just... Californians who are executives in the telecom industry. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> their, their right to profit is being taken Exactly. Uh, and, by the way, the DOJ has been challenging California on all of those other things you mentioned, uh, yep. you know, emission standards and so forth. And I think that's just one of the reasons why the administration would really, really, really like to get uh, Judge uh, Kavanaugh in onto the Supreme Court as soon as possible, as all of these challenges uh, are, you know, being heard in the next few months. Uh, finally, David, before I let you go, and I've only got about 30 seconds, so I don't know how you answer this in that time, but um, all of these stories, the Amazon minimum wage increase, the new NAFTA deal, the uh, federal government crackdown on very popular net neutrality laws. Uh, does any of this have an effect uh, on the midterm elections just 35 days from now? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I think things that are just sort of in the, in, in the atmosphere certainly uh, could play a role in the elections. I think uh, at this moment, the Kavanaugh situation is drowning everything else out. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, Republicans came in thinking, this is great. We're going to force red state Democrats to make this, this awful decision of whether or not to go ahead with, with a conservative justice on the court or not. And if they don't, we can, we can, we can get them on. Uh, we'll still get our justice because we'll keep all the Republicans. 
and we can uh, you know force a bad vote from them that uh, red states will, will will put forward to, to throw them out. It is completely reversed. <laughs> it, it, it is now the situation that voting against Kavanaugh probably helps you in the election, and voting for him probably hurts you. Uh, that is the 100% diametric opposite of what Republicans thought going into this debate. And uh, it, it just shows the challenges now that they they have to, to hold the House and Senate in the midterm. Anyone's guess at this point, I suspect. David Dayan, you can find his work well everywhere at The Intercept, the L.A. Times, in these times. Keep track of it all at davidayan.tumblr.com and follow him, of course, on the Twitters at ddayan. Thanks for jamming a whole bunch into one single show here, David. Greatly appreciated, my friend. All right. Thank you. You bet. Okay, that was D. Dayan. A quick break, and we're back with D. Doyen as Desi Doyen joins us for the latest Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Just a quick thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only thing that keeps us on those public airwaves. We don't rely on uh, corporate support or political support. We rely on you, and your support is needed now more than ever. At bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Giant mosquitoes. Giant <laughs> man-sized mosquitoes. Well, uh, the size of a car, am I right? Not about quite, that? but not, close. But close? All right, that's what's happening in North Carolina in our latest Green News report. Climate change is having an impact now, and that impact will only increase more in the future. Hurricane Florence was the second wettest storm in U.S. history. In terms of water. Bug experts say they're three times the size of normal mosquitoes. As North Carolina now grapples with an outbreak of giant mosquitoes. Trump administration uses catastrophic climate change to justify rolling back fuel efficiency standards. Plus, we have decided to stay unified in spite of the U.S.'s decision to withdraw. This is power. French President Macron rejects trade deals with any country not in the Paris Climate Agreement. All of those rejections and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Remember this. I'm an environmentalist. I don't think that word means what you think it means, Mr. President. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, giant mosquitoes in North Carolina? Really? <laughs> yes, really. As North Carolina begins its recovery from the historic impacts of Hurricane Florence, Governor Roy Cooper has ordered $4 million in funding to control an outbreak of large, aggressive mosquitoes that are the size of wasps that are breeding in these slowly receding floodwaters. Also, Florence has entered the record books as the second rainiest storm in U.S. history. Its three feet of rain came in second only to last year year's Hurricane Harvey. That means that the top two highest intensity rainfall events in the United States both 
occurred in just the last year. Total coincidence. Nope, that's actually in line with what climate scientists predict we'll see with global warming. GTM Research reports that while it has taken weeks to fully restore power to residents in North Carolina who got their electricity from coal plants, North Carolina's solar plants were up and running the day after the storm hit and sustained only minor damage. Imagine that. Meanwhile, an international team of scientists studying the Earth's geologic past warned that we are potentially headed for 20 to 30 feet of sea level rise by the end of this century if we don't act to reduce emissions. The new study in the journal Nature found that temperatures not much warmer than we're seeing today were sufficient 125,000 years ago to melt major ice sheets in East Antarctica, raising sea levels as much as 20 to 30 feet higher than today, which of course would swamp coastal cities and create millions of refugees. But they also note that if humanity manages to cut emissions, global temperature rise would slow down the process of melting the ice sheets. You know, if you just stopped reading all these studies, none of these bad things would happen, Des. Meanwhile, in the nation's capital, the Trump administration admits that killing U.S. climate policies will indeed make climate change worse. The Washington Post reports that deep in a regulatory proposal to roll back Obama-era mileage and emission standards for cars and trucks, the administration assumes that on our current course, global temperatures will rise a catastrophic 7 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100. So they admit that, yes, climate change change is happening, climate change is deadly, and then they use that information to support their rollbacks to these regulations. Right. Rather than spurring action, the administration is instead using it to justify its deregulation spree. They're effectively saying that since fuel efficiency standards by themselves are not enough to stop global warming, it doesn't really matter if the administration rolls them back. So all of these terrible things are going to happen. We admit it. And yet, if we roll back these regulations, it's not going to make that much of a difference. So don't worry about it. Good luck, planet Earth. Why bother? Right. President Trump on Monday announced a deal had been reached with Canada and Mexico on the existing North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, but trade deals with the European Union could be more difficult. In remarks to the United Nations General Assembly late last week, French President Emmanuel Macron called on UN member nations to reject any trade agreement with countries not signed on to the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement, clearly referencing the United States. Well, how many are not signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement? Just the United States. Huh. Here's Macron through an interpreter. Let us also be clear, consistent. Let's, for an example, stop signing trade agreements with those who don't comply with the Paris Agreement. Let's have our trade agreements take on board our environmental obligations. Now, to be clear, the U.S. is technically still in the Paris Climate Accord. Trump only announced his intention to withdraw starting in 2019, and the earliest that an actual withdrawal could occur would be the day after the presidential election in 2020. You can't imagine how much I am looking forward to that day. For much more on all of our stories today and the ones that we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or even Google Play. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report.
just thinking about the day that Donald Trump is no longer in office. That's going to be the party all, all over the world. All over the world. You're probably right. I'm celebrating already. Yeah, there'll be a lot of cleanup work to do, however. A lot of work ahead to uh, to make right what's all gone wrong. Anyway, you're <laughs> right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, David Dayan of In These Times and Everywhere Else, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. You can download our... Um, our shows anytime you like for free at bradblog.com if you missed any portion of today's or any other. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the bradblog. I hope you will uh, find me there, follow me there, and share our reports as much as widely as you can. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. Uh, th that's how we stay on your public airwaves and on your podcasts and at bradblog.com where we uh, make all of this available, this information available for free. It is thanks only to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. I heard from uh, someone the other day who signed up for a monthly subscription oh, which yay. you can do at uh, for any amount you like who who wrote in to say now I can listen guilt free <laughs> not that I want anyone to feel guilty for listening if they haven't donated but frankly you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> no. Well, also, but you make Just a good, kidding. you make a great point. However, that this does enable us to provide this programming free to nonprofit, non-commercial, and independent stations, not only across the country but actually around the world as well. Thank you. Good argument. Much huh? better than mine about how people should feel terrible about themselves <laughs> if they don't. You're donate. helping others. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you very much, Desi, and thanks to everyone. Uh, we'll be back with you again tomorrow for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.